0: right, time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Tuesday, March 10th, 2009. I guess I could say, in the year of our Lord, 2009. Because we Christians keep time with Christ being the center of it. Don't fall for those people out there saying, uh, well, we need to be uh, sensitive to people who have different opinions. And so rather than saying before Christ, we should say before the common era or some kind of nonsense like that. No, it's B.C. and A.D. Well, Welcome to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that your friends and pastor may have warned you about. If you're listening to this... I some of you listening, I know you're sneaking this in. You don't want your friends and family to know you're listening to this. And and, and listening could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church. I have to warn you, you got to be careful. There's so many churches out there nowadays that are um well, unchurchly. And our job here at fighting for the faith is to dish up a daily dose of biblical discernment. The the point of which is to help you to think biblically, to think critically, to compare what people are saying, whether they're a pastor, whether they're a national Christian figure, or even if they're the host of a radio program called Fighting for the Faith, to compare what they say to the written word of God. And if they contradict the word of God, then they're off. They're, they've are they got a problem. And so... Uh, And you've got to think biblically and critically about these things. Now, error falls into different types of categories. There are some errors that, quite frankly, they're just stupid and dumb. And there are some errors that are going to send people to hell. And so at this point, we would rather point out the errors and help you to analyze what people are saying. Why? Well, the Christian... Bible, the New Testament, tells us about the Berean church. I mean, when the Apostle Paul you know, went into Berea, he swung through Berea, and uh, he went to the synagogue there and, and reasoned with them from the Scriptures and showed them that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And what did they do? They unthinkingly took what he said and said, Wow, this is great. N- no, actually, that's not what they said. That's not what they did. They took what Paul said. And they compared the gospel that he was preaching to the Old Testament scriptures, which they had. And according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke, Dr. Luke, to write that the Berean church was of a more noble character than the Thessalonian church. Why? Because they compared what Paul said to the word of God. We should be doing the same. We can be doing the same and it's imperative not for our salvation as as if this is some kind of good work that earns us brownie points with god as if you could do such a thing but no we do these things so that we do not fall into error and to apostasy and so that we are not deceived by the devil and when we pray in the lord's prayer lead us not into temptation that temptation is not limited to moral failings when we think about temptation, we think about temptation to go out and commit the big sin. Whatever the big sin is for you, I, I don't know. But you know we're, we're afraid the devil's going to come and, and drag us off and, into moral failing. And that is a definite danger. Believe me, I'm not, I'm not trying to talk that down. The devil can do that. But that's not the only way in which he is limited to. Think about the temptation of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, when they were tempted in the garden, were they tempted in the garden to fornicate, to fornalcabutilate, to smoke or to drink or to dance? No. The temptation of the devil that came to them was a temptation to not believe and trust the very plain words of God. Satan's first temptation was to get Adam and Eve to not believe and trust God's word. Satan's slithery voice said, Did God really say? And when Jesus was taken out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, was what was his temptations based upon? The word of God again. Satan tried to tempt the Lord to do things that he should not have done by twisting God's word. Satan works the same way today. The temptation of the devil many times that comes to us is not the obvious thing. The temptation that comes to us is to question and doubt God's word. So what we do here is we take what people say and compare it to God's word because We believe that the Bible is the very word of God, inerrant, inspired by the Holy Spirit. In fact, they contain the very words of life. And the Bible itself points us to the one true king, the one true God. And by that, I mean that all other gods are false. They don't have ears. They don't exist. They cannot save. They cannot help you because they're not there. You might as well be whistling in the dark. But we, in the Bible, we have the revelation. God reveals himself to us in the words of Scripture, and he has this profoundly great message for us. All the misery that we experience in our own lives, misery that we bring on ourselves, the Scripture shows us, because of our own sin and rebellion, that Christ has died and atoned for our sins, He's propitiated the wrath of God, filled up to the full measure and drunk the cup of God's wrath and justice that we should be drinking and is offering us full and complete pardon for sin. All of us. And this is a message not just of salvation to unbelievers. This is a message that all of us need to hear because every single day we fail to keep God's law. And it would be very easy for us on a daily basis to think that it's now my job, now that Jesus has forgiven me and I've made a decision for Jesus, it's now my job to make sure that I, that I keep my relationship with Jesus. Because if, if, if I don't, then, then Christ is going to reject me. Hogwash. You're looking at the wrong thing. You need the gospel. You do not save yourself from the law now that you've heard the gospel. That's silly. May it never be. No Christian You need the gospel just as much as I do. And you need it every day. You need it every Sunday. The scriptures are about Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins. This is the good news. And this is what we like to proclaim here at Fighting for the Faith. Today's program, boy, all of that little monologue to talk about today's program. We're going to be, it's a little bit of a different program today. We're not going to be doing a, a, a bad sermon review. Yesterday was pretty much scraping the bottle bottom of the barrel. My mother-in-law called me up, and she says, "Does the barrel get any lower or deeper?" <laughs> it was a it was a really it was a stinker of a sermon. But you see, yesterday's sermon we we reviewed a sermon called Crazy Love, and the whole purpose of that sermon was one of these uh, purpose-driven seeker-sensitive felt needs. Uh, sex sermons you know and, and this church even took out billboards letting everybody know that they were doing this sex sermon series called crazy love and the content of that sermon could not have been more banal more underwhelming it couldn't have missed the point of the scriptures more if he tried i mean it was about as sharp as a bag full of wet mice that's all I have to say about it. So today, <laughs> anyway, we're not, we're not going to do that today. In fact, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're, we're going to do our listener email. I've got a story I want to uh, cover uh, uh, from the Christian Post today called Christianity Under Fire. And we're going to review not one, but two good sermons. Two good sermons. Why two? Well, one of the things I've noticed about Lutheran uh, sermons is, is man they are short. I mean, they stay on the scriptures. They point you to Christ, point out your sin, and boy, they are short. And there's two different sermons we're going to be reviewing today. One is going to be on the parable of the good Samaritan. The email that I got yesterday uh, from a listener asking about his uh, his notes and thoughts on the uh, the parable of the good uh, the good Samaritan because he had uh, experienced a very law heavy version of that. Um, uh, of that parable that was preached on by his pastor. This is uh, Matt from Hamilton, Ontario. I put the link up yesterday at fightingforthefaith.com. If you'd like to go there and review it, you, know, you can actually click on the link for the Issues Etc. program where Todd Wilkin interviews the Reverend Bill Swirla on this particular parable. But I've also put a link up to the sermon that we're going to review today, and this is from a young man by the name of uh, Pastor Jeremy Rody. He preached this back in uh, July of 2007 on the parable of the Good, Sa- uh, Good Samaritan, and it's worth listening to because I tell ya, you, you don't, you don't get the parables t- unless you see Christ. In fact, <clears throat> one of the listener emails I got today was just a short little pithy one, and it, and it was awesome. Uh, John Fromm wrote, um, he, says, uh, he, he gave me a quote from Norman Nagel. Norman Nagel uh, was a professor at Concordia Theological Seminary in St. Louis for many, many, many years. And just, this guy was dripping with the gospel, and just an amazing professor. And uh, in fact, some of his sermons are online. I wonder if I can get permission to play a Norman Nagel sermon. Hmm, I have to make a note to self. Self, find that out, because his, uh, great stuff. Um, Norman Nagel once said, you haven't got the point of a parable unless you've got the Jesus point. And John Fromm points out, he says, or in other words, parables aren't just Earthly stories with a heavenly meaning, but they're earthly stories with a Jesus meaning. Have to tuck that one away. Great point, John, by the way. Great point. So we're going to be reviewing a good sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan that gets the Jesus point very well. And we're also going to listen to a good sermon um, uh, called Empowered by the Spirit to Help Others. Empowered by the Spirit to help others, and this is uh, was preached by the Reverend uh, La- Reverend Lastman of uh, Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle. And the reason why we're going to be doing that is because I think it's a good counterpoint to the story, the the new story that we're going to be reviewing today, called Christianity under fire from the Christian Post. So uh, again, it's going to be a great program. Stay tuned. I have no idea how long it's going to go, but we'll we'll figure it out. Okay. So got an email today. Hang on a second here. Switching my notes. Yeah, I'm more organized now than I've ever been, and it's actually causing me disorganization. I. I uh. <laughs> All right. Russ in Cleveland writes, uh, Russ in Cleveland, Ohio, says, Chris, I was wondering if you could answer a question on personal forgiveness. I recently heard about a book by R.T. Kendall called How to Forgive Yourself Totally, which is based on the premise that as God forgave forgives us our sin, assuming, of course, that we believe on him, confess and repent, that we are to forgive ourselves. When looking at the book on Amazon, I read a uh, one-star review that said the Bible does not say this and that we should just re- believe in God, that he died for our sins. Could you please comment on this? I would really uh, value uh, your thoughts. Thank you. Uh, Russ, excellent question. Okay, whoever gave... Uh, the one-star review to that book uh, knows what they're doing. This person was uh, exercising some good biblical discernment. And so I would answer you biblically this way. Number one, there is no language in the Bible that I am aware of. Now, if you are aware of it, send me it, I, you know, we'll, and I'll rescind the comment, that tells us that we, need, we can or need to forgive ourselves. Okay? I am not aware in all of my readings of the Scripture and in theology, of a category for self-forgiveness. And as best as I can track down, self-forgiveness is pretty much a pop psychology, very modern uh, term. It's a psychologizing term, and I don't think it has the right focus biblically. Instead, you have to understand forgiveness is really something that is only offered from And only the right of the one whom you've sinned against to offer you. Okay? So in the, in in fact, let me give you an analogy. Let's say, uh, or a metaphor. Let's pretend hypothetically for a minute that I decide that I'm going to go across the street and I am going to steal my neighbor's car. And I'm going to take it out. And I'm going to, you know, because my neighbor has a, a great car, and I, I really want to drive it. It's brand new. It has leather. It, it looks like it goes from zero to sixty in about four seconds. And and you know, it's got a it's a convertible to boot. I mean, talk about lust of the eyes, right? So I decide while my neighbor's not looking, I'm going to steal the car, hotwire it, and take it out for a ride because I just I I really want to experience this car. So I, I proceed to do so, and it turns out that the neighbor notices that it's gone and calls it into the police. I get arrested, right, for stealing the car, and at this point, I feel awful. Oh, no, what have I done? I have broken one of the commandments, thou shalt not steal. Okay, and so the neighbor comes to visit me in the local pokey. That's a jail for uh, th- those of you outside the United States who don't know or <clears throat> cultural term but he comes to visit me in the local jail and um and he just reads me the riot act what were you thinking what what makes you think that you could steal my car Roseboro? are you nuts and i say to him you know i i understand that you're angry I, I I get that. I mean, you have every right to be angry, but, you know, I've been doing some thinking about this. And, you know, I, I'm not going to let you put guilt upon me because, you know, I've already forgiven myself for this. <laughs> my neighbor would have every right to look at me and go, what? What? What are you talking about? That, that's a completely empty and stupid way of looking at things. Now... On the other hand, if my neighbor comes to me and says, Chris, what you did was terrible. You stole my property. And I say, you know what? I don't know what came over me. What I did was wrong. I was lusting after your vehicle. And that lust grew to the point where it became action. And I have sinned against you. You have every right to throw the book at me, and I deserve it. I am very sorry for stealing your vehicle. Will you forgive me? And if my neighbor says to me, Chris, I see that you're repentant and that you're contrite. And you know what? As crazy as this sounds, not only am I going to forgive you, I'm going to drop the charges. You're free to go. Right? At that point... The only person who has the right, the authority to forgive, is my neighbor. And if my neighbor offers me forgiveness, drops the charges, and then the police come to my jail cell and open up the jail cell and say, Roseboro, you're free to go. You have been forgiven of grand theft auto. The only thing that matters is that my neighbor has offered me forgiveness. Now, whether or not I forgive myself is really beside the point. Now, let's say for a second that I, I decide that, no, I'm, I feel so terrible. I'm going to stay in this jail cell and I'm, I'm going to stay here until I rot because I just can't forgive myself for stealing the car the police are going to pick me up and drag me out of the jail and throw me out on the street. We don't care if you've forgiven yourself. There's no reason for you to stay here. Get out. Did I have the power to release myself from prison, from jail, from the charges ever in this entire situation? No, not even for a second. Same way with our own sin. Okay? The only that matters the only thing that matters is that god forgives us and he's declared us to be forgiven and righteous in christ in fact let me back some of this up with scripture you remember that whole uh, moral shortcoming of king david's yeah for those of you who think that king david is some great hero of morality read your bible um Psalm fifty one, this was written by King David right after Nathan the prophet came to visit him and um, confronted him with his sin of adultery and murder. And David pens these words in Psalm fifty one. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love and according to your abundant mercy. in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or would I give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good, design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, and then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, and then bowls will be offered on your altar. Notice here in Psalm 51, this is a psalm of a man who is broken, contrite, and aware of his sin, the law doing its work, and him literally begging and pleading for God's mercy, and he extols God's mercy. And notice he says, against you and you only have I sinned. We like to... One of the problems with self-forgiveness is that self-forgiveness is self-focused forgiveness. But I can't look inside of me for forgiveness. Scripture points me to the cross. Scripture points you to the cross. You don't need to forgive yourself. Rather, you need to look to Jesus Christ for your forgiveness and keep your eyes gazed on him. Stop looking to yourself. Look to him. Don't look at yourself. Look at him. You cannot save yourself. You cannot forgive yourself. You cannot let yourself off the hook. Only Christ can do that. And, Ultimately, somebody who feels that they have to forgive themselves on top of the forgiveness that Christ is giving in a very real way is undermining and showing lack of faith in and trust in the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins won by Jesus. We read in Psalm 130. Let me pull up my computerized Bible here. Hang on a second here as I go through my Context here. Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, kept a record of wrongs, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. You see, forgiveness is the prerogative of our Lord. And it's because of that that he is feared and loved and trusted rest in his mercy rest in his forgiveness. You can't forgive yourselves forgive yourself and forgiving yourself accomplishes really nothing. The big thing is that Christ for Christ forgives you. Christ died for you. Let me point out something also in the preaching of the apostles. This is uh, Peter in Acts chapter three this is not a seeker sensitive sermon so i i i warn you guys out there right now if uh you're not used to rough and tumble preaching this is not going to bode well with you um peter had and john had just uh given a a crippled man the ability a paralyzed man the ability to walk actually they didn't do it god did it through them And so, uh, and all the people were astounded. We read in Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Listen to this preaching. While he, that's the paralyzed guy, now now healed, clung to Peter and John, all the people were utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy One, the Righteous One, and asked for a murder to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Notice, um, I'm going to point something out here real quick. So much of the predominant preaching nowadays is on changed lives. Nowhere in, do we see in the preaching of the apostles this um, this gospel of the changed life. Instead, the gospels were uh, not the gospels. The apostles were sent out as witnesses to the one real changed life, Jesus's. He was changed from dead to alive. He rose again for our justification and for our salvation, and they were proclaiming Christ. And more importantly. They were proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. To this we are witnesses, Peter says. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. and And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. See, the call, the clarion call of the gospel there is repentance and refreshing that comes from, that springs forth, that flows from, that has its origin in Jesus Christ. Not a forgiveness that has an origin within yourself and your capricious feelings and your wishy washy back and forthness, but is grounded in the one rock of our salvation. That's Jesus Christ. So self forgiveness really isn't helpful at all. It's not a biblical category. Instead, rest in the times of refreshing that come from Him because in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, Russ, whatever sins that you feel like you need to forgive yourself of, they have already been nailed to the cross. Jesus' own blood has already atoned for them. Your self-forgiveness is not needed. Focus your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of your faith, and the times of refreshing that you are looking for in your own life that seems so elusive to you now that would, you would be tempted to look to yourself in your own forgiveness to bring. they can, You can't bring them from within you. They flow from and come from the Lord. Repent of your sins, therefore, and rest in this refreshing word of forgiveness offered specifically for you. All right, we're going to take our first break. And uh, when we come back... See here. We're gonna take a look at that news story uh, called Christianity Under Fire from today's Christian Post. And then we're also going to be reviewing not one but two good sermons today. We I think we need them. I need them. (laughs) So if uh, you would like to email me, you can do so. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back.
1: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian
2: Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. ha, ha, ha. Python's Flying Circus Church!
0: Preparation for Lectio Divina Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes Or sit in a comfy chair Take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive
2: and experience
0: God's presence
2: Okay, let's see I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no oh, hold on a that? Get out there!
0: That was the theme of our 2008-2009 school year at
2: St. Peter's Lutheran Day School in Plymouth, Michigan. We're planning for the next school year with an open house on March 22nd. For more details, please see our website,
0: www.stpetersluthernplymouth.org or call us at 734-453-0460. That's 734-453-0460. A vast, there, Pirate Christian Radio listener. Have you visited the Pirate Christian Radio store yet? This is a place where you can stock up on Pirate Christian Radio gear. Don't be a stowaway on our ship. You can let your friends and neighbors know that you are a proud member of our crew by buying one of our Pirate Christian Radio T-shirts or coffee mugs. The best part is that all the proceeds help to keep our ship afloat so that we can take people's false doctrine and share the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Log on to piratechristianradio.com, click on the store link from our homepage, and do it today. You'll be glad that you did. Listening to Fighting for the Faith. I want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you to help us get this message out. And last time I checked, now we're up to what sixty-seven, sixty-eight different countries that we're being listened to around the world. Who would have thunk that we can do a worldwide outreach? <sighs> from a small studio in the middle of a landlocked state called Indiana. (laughs) Yes, we're broadcasting deep within our pirate cove, our pirate grotto in the middle of um, the Midwest (laughs) of the United States. So, folks, no, seriously, if you're growing from this program, if you are learning biblical discernment, hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, learning how to defend your Christian faith and to think biblically and to think critically in terms of sound doctrine versus false doctrine will you partner with us you can do so by going to fightingforthefaith.com and clicking on our donate button or if you would like to send in a check make the check payable to fighting for the faith and send it to post office box 508 fishers indiana 46038 Yes, yeah, see here from fishers indiana we are now fishers of men all right Got got a uh, story from the Christian Post, and uh, let me uh, let me play our. Oh, there we go, <clears throat> our vintage news music. Christianity. Yep. <clears throat> let me try this again. Take two. Christianity under fire. Why fewer people identify with the faith? All right, who wrote this? Hang on a second here. Byline: Dr. Tony Beam, who is a Christian Post guest columnist. So this is an op-ed piece uh, published today in the Christian Post. Here's what it says. uh, When it comes to religion in the U.S., it is now... uh, When it comes to religion, the U.S. is now land of the freelancers. That is the opening statement of Kathy Lynn Grossman's front-page article in the March 9th edition of USA Today concerning the fast-changing face of Christianity in America. In this article, Grossman looks at the results of the American Religious Identification Survey, the ARIS, which is touted to be the most comprehensive look at American religious preferences available, considering the fact that the U.S. Census now excludes questions concerning religious practice. The news for people of faith is not good. Since 1990, the last time the survey was conducted, the number of people who claim no religion at all has risen from 8% to 15%. In contrast, all of the mainline denominations have seen a significant decline in number of the people who describe themselves as participants. According to the survey, the number of Baptists declined from 19.3% to 158 Methodists dropped from 8% to 5%, and there are now approximately 2.8 million people who identify themselves with some sort of new religious movement, including Wiccan, Pagan, or Spiritualist. <laughs> Lovely. These numbers are the more troubling when you consider the fact that the adult population of the United States increased by nearly 50 million people during the same 18-year period. Eris also revealed a major demographic shift in the religious makeup of the country, according to Geographic uh, Region. The Deep South and California saw significant increases in the Catholic population, while Protestant numbers in those areas remained static or they declined. For example, my state of South Carolina saw shrinkage in the number of Protestants from 88% of the population in 1990 down to 70 per, uh, 73% in 2008. During the same period, the number of Catholics rose from 6% to 10%, and the number of those who answered none to the religious preference question more than tripled, rising from 3 to 10%. The only bright spot, the only bright spot... Uh, hang on a second, uh, in the survey may be the number of people who identify themselves as generic Christian by describing themselves not as a denomination, uh, denominational, but as born again. Christian, non-denominational, or evangelical, that number remains statistically the same at 14.2%. I thought these guys were church growthers. How can their Never mind. <clears throat> Sorry, Roseboro interjecting here into the story. Uh, the information gleaned from uh, by Eris will not come as a surprise for most Christian leaders. It doesn't take a survey to convince people who are on the front lines of Christian service and ministry that it is getting harder every year not only to reach those who are unchurched—I hate that word— but also to retain the churched—yeah, what— well, and so uh, the author asks, why? Why are so many people in America leaving the faith and so few turning to Christ through faith? I believe that there are many reasons, both large and small, but I think they can all be summarized in five broad categories. So uh, the author here, Dr. Tony Bean, gives us five reasons why he thinks people Christianity isn't uh, spreading. Since 1990, there has been a significant rise in the number of people who are what I call aggressive atheists. In past generations, atheists have been a rather quiet group, preferring to keep their unbelief to themselves. But the last 18 years have seen a sharp rise in the number of aggressive atheists who proclaim their atheism with enthusiasm and have gone on what could be called an anti-evangelism or reverse evangelism mission, with the goal being the destruction of any belief in God. This has had a chilling effect on believers as they are caught... Uh, somewhat flat-footed um, and unprepared to defend their beliefs against the attacks of these aggressive atheists. This leads to the second reason for the decline. So according to Dr. Tony Beam, he thinks that uh, aggressive atheists is part of the problem. Now, I'm going I'm to make this claim. I'm going to put this into the middle of it. I think Christianity, uh, the banal, therapeutic, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic version of Christianity— um, and legalism has actually created these e- atheists. I think these people, if you really, if you take a look, in fact, many of the people I know who are these really aggressive and nasty atheist types, uh, they were people who grew up in the church. I think the, these people were created by really bad legalistic doctrine or th- moralistic therapeutic deism. So we continue on to the next point, uh, category number two: the abandonment by local church apo- uh, uh, by local church of apologetics as a major part of Christian discipline. Uh, Yeah, well, how about not just apologetics, Dr. Beam, how about, like, just even sound doctrine? Many Christians are unwilling or unable to defend their faith because they haven't been systematically taught uh, the truth and how to defend it. Well, of course they're not being taught that. They're too busy learning how to have sex. They're too busy learning how to have crazy love, and and, uh, and now sex is for sale at church, according to the postcards being sent out by Granger Community Church, and, and they're learning how to manage their finances and, and find their purpose, and and yeah, okay, I mean, I'm sorry, but serious-minded systematic doctrine and theology and apologetics is not being taught in these megachurches. Um, the concept of absolute truth has been under assault since the mid-19th century German liberalism began to creep into the theological thinking of many Americans. Truth must be defined before it can be defended, and most churches spend little or no time teaching people how to do either. You're right, Dr. Beam. He continues, focus on the, family, focus on the family's truth project and other parachurch attempts at promoting apologetics are good, but for the most part, they're not translating into the teaching of the local church. Hey, we've got to start somewhere. That's why Pirate Christian Radio exists, by the way, folks. Um, it exists to basically fill in the gap. The stuff that your pastor is not teaching you, we'll do that here until God raises up pastors who will do it in the local churches. Uh, number four, um, well, actually, sorry, Number three, uh, He says the combination of traditional religious teaching with the new age concept of spirituality, the oprahization of the church is well underway with millions now tuning in through TV and the web and turning on to oprah winfrey 's brand of hom- homogenized religion well yeah the, the reason why there 's a lot of Christians that are tuning in into this is be- goes back to your second point. no apologetics, no doctrine, no serious-minded teaching in Christian, you leave these—when you don't teach people what the Bible actually says and you don't teach them how to defend their faith against these things, what you do is you set them up to become, literally be snatched out of the church or taken over by the Oprahization of the church. you got a bunch of completely biblically illiterate Christians running around the landscape out there, and they are the prey of the false doctrines being, being sold by Oprah. Anyway, uh, Beam continues, says being spiritual as uh, as defined by Eckhart Tolle and others means simply believing in a nebulous force that might work well for Star Wars Jedi, but in the real world is nothing but new age nonsense. Category number four from Doctor Beam, he says the negative portrayal of Christianity and culture by the media and the proliferation of scandals within the church. The media loves a good church scandal, scandal, and unfortunately. Church leaders in America have been more than happy to provide the media with plenty of material from pedophiles masquerading as Catholic priests to Protestant ministers who can't keep their wedding vows. People are losing faith in their religious leaders, and the media piles on with negative portrayals of organized religion portraying the extremist Fred Phelps as an accurate picture of typical evangelism. Yeah, I would say there's some media bias in that sense. And then number five, a lack of emphasis in the Church on evangelism is defined by personal conversion and a reluctance by the Church to embrace uh, uh, new methods of communication for the purpose of evangelism. No, 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 no. This is where you're wrong. Many churches have stopped trying to evangelize, and many of those that are still trying, trying are using methods that were effective in 1955 but failed to connect in the 21st century. Oh, so close, and yet so far. I'm sorry, but uh, purpose-driven evangelism methods, all they do is proliferate the, the lack of doctrine and apologetics within the church. So it was so good up until that point. So, so that was uh, Christianity Under Fire, Why Fewer People Identify With the Faith, uh, column written by <clears throat> a gentleman, Dr. Beam. There. So, oh, well, so close, so close, so close, and yet so far. All right, what we're going to do here is we're going to switch gears one more time. Now, I've promised you all today, and you know what? Hang on a second here. I forgot one very important little thing. We're going to, we continue our march to the book of Acts. Uh, not, <laughs> Roseboro, wake up through the book of Mark. We're going to continue our, <laughs> our march to the book of Mark. We are in Mark chapter 12, and uh, we've been working our way piece by piece through the, uh, the book of Mark, and so we continue in our uh, march to the book of Mark now that I've got my bearings and know what I'm talking about. Where well, we last let, let off... Uh, <sighs> Roseboro, my brain and my tongue seem to be disconnected today. I think I need to go to radio classes or something. When we last left off in the story of the Gospel of Mark, the Herodians and the Pharisees thought they would come and trick Jesus by uh, giving him the ultimate catch-22 question. Well, as it turned out, it wasn't really much of a catch-22 question at all, and um, it w- they weren't as clever as they thought they were, because Jesus astonished them with his answer as far as paying taxes, pointing out a coin and basically asking whose picture was on it, and they said Caesar's, and he said, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and to God, what is God's. End of discussion. Well, <clears throat> now that the Pharisees and the Herodians had struck out, it was time for the Sadducees to come and... Make their grand appearance unto thee. We're going to test Jesus and see if we can trip him up. Stage the Sadducees, by the way. You can, in in, a, in the kind of a loose way, you can think of them as the liberals of their time. They didn't actually believe in a literal resurrection. They were religious. They were moral, but eh, you know that idea that you know people raised from the dead. You know the resurrection. <laughs> we're too uh, educated and modern to believe such silly nonsense as that. So um, we read from Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And the Sadducees came to Jesus, who, and they say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no children, the man must take the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. So far, they are correctly quoting the Mosaic Law. And so now they've come up with the equivalent of the how many angels can dance on the head of a pin question. And so they say, well, there were seven brothers and the first took a wife. And when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For The seven had her as a wife. Now, interesting here. Now, their question presupposes a couple of things, and notice that they say in the resurrection. They, they're, they're trying to kind of trick Jesus here, and so they don't believe in the resurrection, but they're asking him a question about the resurrection. Tricky, tricky, tricky. <sighs> so, basically, Jesus takes the liberal Sadducees, and he is now about to school them. And I do mean they are going to get schooled. Uh, what's the word that my daughter uses? Uh, pwned. <laughs> At the end of this, you just see people wincing, going, ooh, they got pwned. So We read, so Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Ouch. Talk about an insult. Jesus just rebuked them. These, these Sadducees are leaders. They're religious leaders. And Jesus just said to them, not only you're wrong, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. I would say the same thing about the emergence in modern day liberals. They're wrong because they don't know the scriptures. They deny them, by the way, and they don't know the power of God. They have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. Verse 25, for when they rise from the dead... Jesus just affirmed the resurrection, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but instead are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke of him saying, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. You are quite wrong, or you are badly mistaken. Interesting. You know, what's funny is is that that particular exchange is very similar to the exchange that Jesus had with the devil. They twisted God's word, and Jesus rebukes them using God's word. And in a very real way, this is what we are called to do in light of false doctrine and false teaching and false presuppositions, bring them back to the word of God. Now, notice that Jesus had no problem whatsoever telling them, you are wrong. Now, in America today, this is a cardinal sin. You tell somebody they're wrong, you are going to be labeled insensitive, narrow-minded, legalistic, bigoted, pharisaical. They'll throw all the books at you, okay? But keep this in mind. When people start calling you names, it's because they can't refute you otherwise, when somebody's reduced to name-calling, you gunky head, you're just a narrow-minded legalist, you know, whatever, yeah. If they can't give a rational, biblical answer to defend themselves and they're left with that, then literally, you know, it's an ad hominem argument. They've already lost the argument. They've already lost the debate. They've already proven, they've already been proven to be wrong. Okay, so here we go moving along in the passage we read and one of the scribes came up and heard them Disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them. Well Asked Jesus which commandment is the most important of all So we have a scribe asking Jesus about the commandments now remember the Bible is clear what the purpose of the law is Purpose of the law is to show you your sin and your need for a savior if you are self-righteous then you need to hear the law really cranked up so that your self-righteousness cracks and withers under the scorching heat of the law. But when God's law has done its work, you need to hear the gospel that Christ died for your sins. So this scribe came up to Jesus, heard them disputing with one another, and when he heard that Jesus gave them a good answer, he asked, which is the most important commandment of all? Jesus answered, well, the most important answer, uh, commandment is this. Hero Israel, Shemachah Israel, the Lord our God the Lord is one and you shall have you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart with all of your soul and with all of your mind and all of your strength and the second one is like this love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these stop this passage by itself is enough to completely disprove and show that anybody who thinks that love is the gospel is badly mistaken in fact they're as wrong as the Sadducees in the prior passage here in this chapter love is the demand of the law and the problem is none of us loves God with all of our heart with all of our soul with all of our mind and with all of our strength and none of us loves our neighbor as ourself because God's law demands that we do it perfectly that we do it with the right motive, without personal motives or strings attached, that it's offered freely and it's done perfectly. So the scribe said to him, Well, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no none besides him. And to love with all your heart and with all the, the understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as yourself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you know, you're not far from the kingdom. You're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him more questions. Notice something, though, Jesus' his answer. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Ouch! Think about that. Here the scribe comes, and he's delighting in God's law, and he, he asks what the greatest commandment is, and he gives a wise answer back to Jesus that's based in the law, and Jesus says, you're not far far from the kingdom of God talk about an unsatisfactory answer to get from Jesus if the only thing you're looking to is the law the law is the servant of the gospel so truly this man wasn't far from the kingdom of God but to be close is uh, what do they say close but no cigar close close you're not far you're close or what was that game when I played when I was a kid? You're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. Oh, you're burning up. You're burning up. You're, out. you're not far from the kingdom of God. The law gets you close, but only the gospel gets you in. The law shows you your need for a savior, but only the gospel offers you forgiveness for all of your wickedness and all of the times you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart. And you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Preach the law. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Not far. But you're not there. <sighs> All right. We are literally up on our second break. And when we come back, we're going to do two sermon reviews. We're going to review two sermons. Dos sermonate. Uh, no, <laughs> <laughs> That's not even a word. <laughs> We're going to be hearing a good sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan properly preached because it gets to the Christ point. Again, what was the quote from Norman Nagel? That uh, sermons are not stories that tell us, you know, they're not earthly stories that with a heavenly point. They're earthly stories with a Jesus point. So you're going to hear a good sermon on the uh good samaritan and you will also hear another sermon called empowered by the spirit to help others and the reason why we're listening to that second sermon by uh, Reverend Lasman literally has to do with I want you to compare what you heard what you hear in this this is this is the flip side of that story about Christianity being under fire today uh, and it, it definitely you want to hear both of these sermons and the nice thing about Lutheran preaching is that it's short 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 all right, we're up on our second break. Uh, if you would like to email me, you can do so at talkback at That's talkback at com. We will be right back.
1: your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. ye be listening to Pirate Christian
3: Radio.
0: This month's Pirate Christian Radio Book of the Month for March is Theologia et Apologia. This important work gathers together 18 essays written by some of today's top biblical and Reformation scholars, including Michael Horton, Adam Francisco, Angus Minouge, John Warwick Montgomery, Craig Parton, Kim Riddlebarger, and R.C. Sproul. Collectively, the essays in this book teach and defend biblical theology, especially the theology restored to the church during the time of the Reformation. They address topics including the case for biblical inerrancy, a Christian critique in response to Islam, repentance, a defense of sola scriptura, and much, much more. This little-known theological treasure is a welcome addition to the library of any thinking Christian. You can purchase Theologia at Apologia at piratechristianradio.com. Click on the store link. The book only costs $38 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds help to continue to bring Pirate Christian Radio to you. So visit piratechristianradio.com and purchase your copy today. We're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. We're in hour number two. And if you're a long-time listener, then you know that hour number two, well, the word hour is, um, well, a loose term. <laughs> yeah, Fighting for the Faith, you would think it would be a two-hour-long program, you know, tight. No, we go until we're done. That means that some shows are longer than others. All right, uh, because of the uh, email that we received yesterday from Matt Sim, who was really concerned about the feedback that he was getting from his pastor because he wrote him some notes regarding his observation, regarding his very heavy-handed legalistic law-based interpretation of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, Many of us have experienced this. Folks, I I doubt if you've spent any time in the church that you have somehow avoided hearing a sermon that goes, and the the point of the Good Samaritan sermon is to you go thou and do likewise, and uh, and and you you, you got to become a good Samaritan. Now, now see, when you read the passage like that, you're missing the whole point. Jesus is the Good Samaritan. Jesus is. You ain't. If anything, you you could be one of two characters in the story, so to speak. You could be the um, the lawyer. Many of us are. Or you can be the dead guy on the side of the road. And all of us are that, too. So this is a sermon that was preached by the Reverend Jeremy Rody at Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California. And it's called, Who is My Neighbor? And this is the right way to preach this particular passage. And believe me, there is a right way and a wrong way. And Jeremy Rody gets it right. So here we go. The parable of the Good Samaritan, Who is My Neighbor?
1: Grace be to you and peace from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've all been told that there's no such thing as a stupid question. But I'm convinced that whoever came up with this good intention saying, probably never sat in a corporate meeting, probably never sat in a college classroom, nor apparently did they follow politics or... Stick their nose in a Bible. There are such things as stupid questions. I have a few examples here just to humor you. How many corners does a circle have? Were you present when your photograph was taken? Or one of my personal favorites from Colorado is, how do they get the deer To cross the highway right where those yellow deer crossing signs are. There are stupid questions. There's even stupid questions recorded in scripture. One that comes immediately to mind is that question that Pontius Pilate asked. What is truth? When truth is standing probably not less than two feet away from him, eyeball to eyeball. And the stupid question of the day is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, just why this question is stupid, we'll get to in a minute. First, we have to make a distinction. Though the question itself is stupid, the person asking the question certainly was not. He was a lawyer, which really means that he was an expert in the Old Testament writings, and probably in particular an expert in the Torah, the first five books. And as we see... The man had a good knowledge of Scripture. When Jesus asked him, what is written in the law and how do you read it? The man quoted from Deuteronomy 6. This man was certainly wise and prudent. But when it came to understanding spiritual truths, the man was blind. Just prior to meeting this intelligent and educated man, Jesus had said this prayer. I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. It is God's good pleasure to exalt the foolish things and people of this world. And it is his good pleasure to scatter the proud in their conceit. Our expert in the law was so convinced of his own wisdom, his own godliness, and his own knowledge of Scripture, that he had no problem going right up to Jesus and testing Him. The very same word that Luke uses to describe when the devil tempted Jesus. See, there's something altogether unwholesome when we presume to have this casualness, when we come face to face with Christ when we think that we're in the know or on the level with the Holy One of Israel. This is dangerous ground indeed. It is one thing to wrestle with the Lord, even as Jacob did. We, as Christians, we wrestle with the things that Christ says. We wrestle with the complexities and the complex interface that, that occurs because our broken minds and this broken world don't always register with what God tells us is true. But it's another thing altogether to have your mind made up against Christ. To think that you have Him trapped in some kind of silly Barnes & Noble history channel skepticism. These constantly are presenting new tests and challenges which will surely debunk Christianity. Garbage. Stupidity. Stupidity. When's the last time you had a relevant conversation about the Da Vinci Code? It's out like an 80's hairdo. This stuff is trash. These things are nothing but excuses so that souls don't have to deal with the complexities of a sorrowful world and a God who entered into our sorrows to rescue us. A God who became man To save humanity from itself. It is he who has existed since before the foundation of the world. And it is his promises which have been around at least since Genesis 3. God's word doesn't go out of style. It endures forever. So whatever it might have been that the expert in the law thought he had. Some new piece of information. Some new insight that would straighten Jesus out. Well... It didn't really work out, did it? He got face to face with Christ and was made to look like a fool. Jesus has a way of bringing out the stupid in people, but only in those who think themselves wise. To the rest, he is gentle as a lamb. But to those who think themselves wise, he is as a light shining in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. The expert in the law asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answers in rabbinical fashion with his own question. What do the scriptures say? The expert responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. All right, stop there for a second. Pointing this out.
0: Common theme here is watch how people use the law in the scriptures. We just read in Mark about, uh, about the scribe and his, uh, his understanding of the law, and Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Not, 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 not far. You're getting warmer. Now let's see what uh, Jeremy Rody does here with uh, this little question. And keep this in mind as you're reading this passage. The context, the kickoff question is what must I do to inherit eternal life? That, if you keep that as your primary context, it'll help you unlock the parable itself. You'll see.
1: Jesus says, hey, you answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. If you can love the Lord your God with all your heart, and love your neighbor as yourself and if you can do these from the very beginning of your life all the way through in absolute perfection then do it that's right by the way
0: um, I'll be the first to tell you the law can save you if the law can save you if you can keep it perfectly from the time of your conception until the moment of your last breath good luck
1: and you will have eternal life that is the law And that is, in fact, what Jesus is saying. The expert in the law knew it. The law can get you to heaven, but you have to know that it demands absolute perfection from start to finish. You have to know also that there is no complex accounting system going on. Mess up here, say a Hail Mary there, everything somehow works itself out. Scripture says nothing about how we might make up for our sin. How we might restore things, sure. But the guilt itself cannot be washed away. The wages of sin is death. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have turned aside. There is not one who does good. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do something that no other human being on the face of the planet has ever been able to do. Obey the law perfectly. If you can't do that, you just might be looking for plan B. The expert got what Jesus was saying. And it knocked a hole in him like a wrecking ball. He knew that he had not been perfect. So he immediately comes up with his own unique, personal little plan B. Wanting to justify himself, wanting to make himself righteous, he said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Maybe if I just can narrow it down a little bit. Maybe if it's just I have to be good to my family, take care of my own. Then maybe I'm righteous, if, if just they're my neighbors. Maybe it's just that I have to be a stand-up guy, as long as I don't show up on TV with a police car chasing me then maybe I'm righteous. But that's not what the law says. The law says perfection. Now notice what he's
0: done here, keeping us in the text itself, showing that the second question, who is my neighbor? Okay. That he's asking that as a way to try to shoehorn himself into the kingdom. Do this and you will live. Maybe if I can just narrow down this neighbor thing. That's a correct interpretation of the passage. But notice the second question does not change the context of the passage. The context of the passage falls into the first question What must I do to inherit eternal life? Dumb question. But we continue. So keep that in mind. The context doesn't switch. With the second question, who's my neighbor, is a qualifying question within the context of the first question.
1: Love God with your whole heart. Love every single human being as yourself. If you do this, you have eternal life.
0: Well, I haven't done it. Not even close. Neither of you, by the way.
1: Do it not. You have eternal death. And not annihilation. Not the screen goes black and your body becomes one with the sparkling stars and the air and the wind. That's a pagan idea. Do it not and you inherit hell. That's what Scripture says. That's what it consigns sinners to. Remember the uh, expert's first question, the stupid one. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Well, it's a stupid question because you can't do anything to inherit. You're just born into the right family. And when the head of the household dies, you inherit. It's a free gift. Through baptism, you have been born into the right family, God's family. And when our head of the household died, the God-man Jesus Christ, he died to pay the penalty for your sins, to win your forgiveness, so that you might inherit eternal life. You see, the expert is thinking, law, 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 what can I do? But it really isn't about what we do at all. Rather, it's about what someone else does for you. That's where Jesus comes in with the story of the Good Samaritan. Two moral, Torah-abiding citizens passed by a man who was beaten by robbers and they kept on going. They didn't pass by him because they were traveling with kids on the camel or because they were late for work or even because the man looked dangerous. They passed by because they did not want to become ceremonially unclean. By touching the man if it turned out that he was, in fact, dead. You see, these these men weren't just mean, malicious, nasty people. The law won't touch that which is dirty.
0: Okay, this is an important distinction here. It's not that the people who passed him by were immoral. They were bound by the law in such a way that they couldn't help. The law cannot save us. These men under the law couldn't save this poor chap.
1: The law won't save you if you're half dead by the side of the road in your sins. So the two men who represent the law pass by. Then a Samaritan passes by, an outsider, thought to be unclean and thought to be far from perfect, But it was he who was obedient to the spirit of the law. And he had compassion on the beaten man. He bandaged his wounds, disinfecting and salving them with wine and oil. He placed the man on his own animal and took him to the nearest inn where he took care of him. And then when he had to leave, he gave money to the innkeeper and promised to pay whatever was needed to restore the beaten man to good health. Remember the second question that the expert in the Torah asked. And who is my neighbor? Now Jesus responds to this question by asking one of his own. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? The one who showed him mercy, replied the expert. Question, who is my neighbor? answer the one who shows you mercy is your neighbor you see how jesus completely turned it all around now watch okay the interplay in the questions
0: is key to correctly interpreting the passage who is my neighbor the one who showed me mercy
1: the expert wanted to know who his neighbors were so that he could go out and love them and earn heaven. He wanted to be the good Samaritan. But it's Jesus who gets the man to see that it is actually he who needs a neighbor. It is actually he who is dead in trespasses and needs someone, a good Samaritan, to rescue him. Oh,
0: artfully done, artfully done, brilliant. (laughs) This is right. The lawyer is the one beaten on the side of the road. And Jesus is the one showing him mercy.
1: You are the one beaten on the side of the road. This is so good. Plan B is not to play with the law, to try to narrow things down or to find a loophole. It's not to play with the law and live your best life now. The law kills you dead. It's a dangerous thing. It consigns to hell. And if you haven't loved your neighbors as yourself, then you need a real plan B. The only real plan B there is. You need a neighbor, a good Samaritan, a Savior to rescue you. If you can't be perfect, plan A, then you had better be rescued, plan B. As you can see, the real point of the Good Samaritan is completely the opposite of what most people think it is. When Jesus says to the expert, go and do likewise, Jesus isn't turning the man back to the law. It's absolutely horrifying to think how many sermons were heard today where people were told, now you go and be the Good Samaritan. That is the exact opposite of the point that Jesus is making. Listen carefully to this. When the question is, how do I inherit eternal life? The answer is not go and be a good Samaritan. The answer is go and find the one who is going to be a good Samaritan to you. The one
0: much different than most of you have ever heard. And
1: this is correct. One who will show you mercy. That is how you inherit eternal life. It is we who lie half dead in our transgressions by the side of the road. It is we who need a Samaritan. And What a great Samaritan we have. What a Lord and Savior. The good Samaritan, it isn't you, it isn't me, and the story isn't about how we can help our neighbors. The good Samaritan is a story from start to finish about Jesus, the one who acts like a neighbor to us. It is Christ who heals us, bandaging our wounds Sunday after Sunday. Lord, I am here again with the same old sins. Have mercy. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Christ pours oil and wine upon you, anointing you, disinfecting you, baptizing you, communing you, forgiving you and He takes you in to this this inn His church and He promises whatever else needs to be paid for this person to be healed trust me I've paid it when I died on the cross this is the true story of the good Samaritan so You can either pick yourself up by the bootstraps right now and start being perfect. Or, you can lay back in the tireless arms of the good Samaritan, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as He rescues you from this valley of death. Whichever way seems right to you, as Christ says, you go and do likewise. In His name, Amen. Amen.
0: Okay, so there was our first sermon of the day. This Today's our sermon double hitters. We're doing a double hitter. And the reason again for that sermon was so that you can hear a Christ-centered interpretation of the parable that doesn't throw you back onto the law and tell you if you want to be saved, you got to do better, you got to try harder, you got to go and be the good Samaritan because if you don't, you're not going to make it to heaven. No. The story of the Good Samaritan has the gospel in it. Jesus is the Samaritan. He's the Good Samaritan. You and I are the dead guy on the road. Artfully done, and I am convinced that there's probably most of you out there have never heard the Good Samaritan done this way. Because many a pastor doesn't understand the difference between law and gospel and doesn't understand that the parables point to Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sins. When you interpret the parables in light of Christ crucified for your sins and with a proper understanding of law and gospel, they come to life and they offer you comfort and hope and they offer you forgiveness and mercy, and show you what a ridiculously, obscenely generous and merciful and loving God we have in Jesus Christ. Good, good, good stuff. All right, moving to our second sermon. I don't want to take away from the first, but we have two. Today's a doubleheader. The second sermon was preached by Pastor Lassman of Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington. And the name of this sermon is empowered by the Spirit to tell others about Christ. It was preached on Pentecost Sunday in 2008, May 11, 2008, okay, Pentecost Sunday. So it's based upon Acts chapter 2, you know, the story of the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples who were in the upper room. They begin speaking in tongues. A crowd gathers around. They think they're drunk, and then Peter preaches this amazing sermon. Amazing sermon, and what happens is that thousands repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kickoff to the church, if you would, in the New Testament. Well, the name of the sermon is called Empowered by the Spirit to Tell Others About Christ. I offer this sermon as a counterpoint to the depressing news that we're giving that we're getting. Out of this Aris survey, which we discussed when we talked about Christianity under fire and why few people, fewer people identify with the faith, I don't care about surveys, and you shouldn't either. Ultimately, if there's a decline in Christianity in America— The reason why is because Christians are not out there preaching Christ and him crucified for sins. This is the only message, this is the only gospel that God uses to literally raise people from the dead spiritually, forgive them their sins, indwell them with the Holy Spirit, sanctify them, all of that. Justify, sanctify, faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That being the case, this is a counterpoint sermon to what we heard and the RS survey. And here is Pastor Lastman. You'll hear a little piano intro here, and uh, we'll go from there. You are listening to a sermon by Pastor Lastman at Messiah Lutheran Church in Seattle, Washington.
3: Grace, mercy, and peace be from God our Father and our Risen Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our sermon for this morning is based upon our first reading. It's on the back of your bulletin for for the review. My fellow redeemed in Christ, the church. Oh, hum, how boring. Really think about it. In our culture, and even throughout the whole world and history, the church really is not very thought very highly of. It's often taken for granted, it's ignored, sometimes it's put down and criticized. And let's confess, in many ways, it's not very impressive. And it's certainly filled with a bunch of imperfect people. And yet, and yet, the church is the most important group of people in the entire world. Oh, really? Who says? God says. Why? Because the Holy Spirit uses the Christian church to bring the message of Jesus Christ to a world hopelessly and helplessly lost in sin and in death.
0: That's right. He said the church, God uses the church to bring the message of Jesus Christ to the world. That's you and me. Woot! We got a job to do. And we don't have to do it to earn brownie points, because how can we not share this great news because of who we are in Christ and what he's done for us?
3: Love it. We don't really properly understand the day of Pentecost. Unless we associate the giving of the Holy Spirit with telling others about Jesus Christ. It was for that reason, it was for that purpose, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on that first Pentecost day.
0: Right. That's the reason. The Holy Spirit was poured out so that the church can preach and proclaim. The Holy Spirit was not poured out so that you can get a personal prayer language. Sorry, that's not interpreting the Scripture passage correctly.
3: You will remember just 50 days before Pentecost, our Lord Jesus had died on the cross and he had been forsaken of God to pay for the sins of all of humanity. And three days after that, he was raised from the dead. Never to die again, he is still alive today. And then just 10 days before Pentecost, he told his disciples to go and make more disciples of all the world, baptizing and teaching them. And yet none of what I just said would be possible without the day of Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. Because the Christian church is empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Okay, let's quickly get down to basics. The church brings the message of Jesus Christ to other people because on the judgment day, people without Jesus Christ will be damned forever
0: all right there's the bad news remember you've got to hear the bad news in order to understand the good news christ's love god's love has a context for god demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners christ died for the ungodly that would be you and me
3: forever's a long time let's be honest If we're really honest with one another, it's so easy, we must admit, to forget all about the Judgment Day. Really? How often do you think about the Judgment Day? There's so many things to distract us in this world. So many interesting things. So many fun things. Yeah, yeah, we know the Judgment Day, but it really doesn't seem very real, does it? Maybe it's kind of like people who live in California, and they're warned over and over and over and over again about the big one. The big earthquake that one day is going to hit. They're constantly told all the time to do all they can to prepare for that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We know the big one could hit. But so many of the Californians are so distracted. So many more fun things to do. The big one seems so far, far away. And they probably don't take it quite as seriously as they should. Until, of course, the big one hits. And then all of a sudden, they'll be thinking about what they did or did not do to be prepared for that earthquake. And so it is with the Judgment Day. God doesn't lie. He says there will be a Judgment Day and He will keep His Word. This day will come. In our text, it's called the Day of the Lord. And for those without Jesus Christ... That day will be an incomprehensibly terrifying day. That's what the text is trying to communicate with these words. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. In the book of Revelation, we have several accounts of that judgment day. And the people who will be condemned on this day. This is just one of those accounts. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne. From the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come. And who can stand? Do you know how the people of California are going to feel when that big one finally hits and they have not been properly prepared, that's the way it will be a million times over on the Judgment Day for those who have not prepared.
0: I want to point something out here. Notice how the text is really the primary thing. And he's using illustrations to help us better understand the text. He begins in God's Word and the illustrations he brings up help to illuminate and, and help us to understand better what God is communicating. The exact opposite happens in all of these seeker-sensitive, purpose-driven sermons that we review here on Fighting for the Faith. They begin with their ideas, and and God's Word kind of gets sprinkled in as, as uh, some kind of a weird condiment. Uh, but they don't tell us what God's Word says. They begin somewhere else, and God and the illustrations are the important thing. And it's God's Word that gets left in the dark. Lastman's doing the exact opposite. Just wanted to point out that little point here.
3: So you see then, there is, just as there's an earthquake preparedness, there is a judgment day preparedness. And it's called faith in Jesus. That's what we read in our text. Everyone, everyone, Who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's it. Faith in Jesus Christ. If you were on a cruise ship to Alaska or someplace else and you fell overboard and someone threw you a life jacket, I think you would rejoice greatly. And you'd put that life jacket on with great joy and as quickly as possible so that you would not drown in that water. And so it is with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the life jacket that the church throws out to people for 2,000 years now so that they won't be damned forever. At one level, really, it's so simple if we take the Bible seriously. It really is. For example, if we were in a building, a large building, a large building with many doors, a large building that was on fire, you and I would only have one concern, which door goes outside? Which door goes outside? Just not any old door would work. We wouldn't be interested in a door that goes into a closet. That wouldn't help us. We wouldn't be interested in a door that went into the restrooms. That wouldn't help us. We'd only be interested in one door. What's the door that leads me outside to safety? And so it is with the door that leads to eternal life. Despite what people may say in this world, not all doors lead to the safety of eternal life that door marked good works and being nice that leads nowhere.
0: Wow. <laughs> He's
3: right. Because being good and being nice isn't enough. And the door that has on it other religions and other philosophies and other world views, those doors won't help us either because those are all lies. Those are fake doors that when you open up, it goes nowhere. Those doors won't help us. Only one door will work, Jesus Christ. Why is that? Because there's only one God. And this one true living God has sent only Jesus Christ to die for our sins. And to save us from eternal damnation. Because you and I know with his death upon the cross, our debt of sin to God was canceled in full. And he proved that on the third day when he was raised from the dead to give eternal life to us. And one day raise us from the dead. And so this means that because of Jesus Christ and because of Jesus Christ alone. We don't have to be afraid of the judgment day. Not one bit. That's God's promise to us. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. But of course for people to call on the name of the Lord. They have to hear about him. And not just the name. They have to understand who is he? What did he do? Why should I trust in Him? That's the purpose of the Christian church. And that's the meaning of Pentecost. That on Pentecost, God gave us His Holy Spirit that we might be bold in bringing this good news of Jesus Christ to as many people as possible. Because the truth is this God doesn't want to damn anyone to hell. We must understand that there is a hell. There is damnation. But God doesn't want anyone to experience that. He wants everyone to live with him in that new world that he's going to create. When Jesus returns, a new world without sin and death. The truth is God loves all people. Sometimes we might forget this. God loves other people just as much as he loves you. And just as much as he loves me. And unlike human beings, and yes, probably even ourselves, God doesn't play favorites. God shows no favoritism, and God certainly is not a racist. God sees all people in the same way. Poor, miserable sinners that need His grace, mercy, and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this in his letter to the Romans. God has shut up all in disobedience, that He might show mercy... To all. And so then in God's sight, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who trust in His Son and those who do not. So God then wants all people to hear this good news of Jesus Christ. And those tongues of fire that appeared over the apostles' head on that first Pentecost day, that showed that the giving of the Holy Spirit was to equip these apostles who already believed in Jesus to use their tongues. Tongues to tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's what we're told. They were Right.
0: Not that we get a personal prayer language that you can pray in your closet and sound like you blah, 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 like that. No. They were given tongues of fire to preach and proclaim the gospel, the good news of Christ's death on the cross for the sins of the world, that God was reconciling to himself sinners through
3: the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And it's clear in this context that these other tongues are nothing more than known human languages. And it says, clear from verse 8, how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? The point of Pentecost is this gospel message is for all people of all races. Nations, languages, men, women, young and old, male and female. Everybody is included. And this is why the Christian church then is so important. It may not be important to the world, but it's important to God and for those who know this message of Jesus Christ. Because only the Christian church can bring this message of Jesus Christ to other people. Who else could do it? Obviously no one. And since we are part of this glorious Christian Church's family of God, that's our mission here at Messiah Lutheran Church, to bring this precious gospel to as many people as possible. We often hear about shipwrecks at sea living here on the West Coast, and when that happens, often... The Coast Guard is dispatched to save as many people as possible, either from icy, freezing waters or from shark-infested waters. Likewise, Jesus Christ has sent his church to rescue as many people as possible from the waters of sin and death and everlasting damnation. But he doesn't send us alone. That's the comfort on this day. We have the Holy Spirit which we have also received in our baptism and which we continue to receive also through the word of God.
0: Right. We don't need slick marketing. We don't need seeker-sensitive, felt-need sermons. We need the Holy Spirit to embolden us and empower us to boldly preach Christ crucified for our sins the only hope of rescue from sin, death, and damnation.
3: And so you see, because we are also filled with the Holy Spirit, we want other people to know what we know and to have what we have in Jesus Christ. As I said in the May Messenger article, we have good news to share. That's the message of the church. Good news is meant to be shared. Indeed, how can we not share good news and tell others? How can we keep it to ourselves? It's really that simple. And on that first Pentecost, we're told that some people made fun of the apostles. Why did they make fun of the apostles? Did you ever wonder about that? Well, there's an explanation for that. They were making fun of the apostles because of what the apostles were saying. They were talking about this man who had been crucified and died, and he was alive again. How ridiculous. People might also make fun of us by telling other people about Jesus. They may make fun of us for what we believe concerning Jesus Christ and what He has done and who He is. But just like that didn't stop the apostles, it won't stop us either. For we too have the Holy Spirit. And we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to tell others about Him. On the Judgment Day, can you imagine how happy all those are going to be who have faith in Jesus Christ and see what they're going to inherit forever and ever, the glory that is to come in that new world? It's really beyond our total comprehension. But here's another thought. Can you imagine being there on the day of the resurrection and looking someone to one side or the other and they too are going into that new world because you told them about Jesus? What kind of joy can we have on that day as well? I suppose out here on 35th, many people drive by our congregation and they don't even really pay much attention to it. Just another building among countless other buildings along a long stretch of road called 35th Avenue Northeast. But I assure you, God doesn't see our congregation that way. God doesn't see Messiah Lutheran Church that way. He sees Messiah Lutheran Church as a rescue station. Saving people, reaching out with Jesus to save them from the coming wrath on the judgment day. He sees Messiah Lutheran Church as a place for his dear precious people to continue to receive the forgiveness of their sins and eternal life and the Holy Spirit to empower them just like the apostles long ago to tell others about Jesus so that they too like us might call upon the name of the Lord and be saved now and in eternity. May God, especially the Holy Spirit, bless us here at Messiah Lutheran Church to that end, for his glory, the good of his people, and the extension of his kingdom. Amen. And now the peace of God that passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. So that was our sermon double header today. Second sermon there by Pastor Lastman on empowered by the Holy Spirit to help others to proclaim or tell others about Jesus Christ. Doesn't get any better than that. By the way, both those sermons are examples of the types of sermons that are always—and I mean always—playing on Pirate Christian Radio, day in and day out. Those are the types of sermons that we pick for our Preaching Christ Sermon Series. You can hear Jeremy Rody's sermons every week on the, on the Thursday edition of The Gift. Tune in to Pirate Christian Radio and hear these sermons for yourself. Let God's Word and the Gospel message be proclaimed to you. And so you can hear the forgiveness of your sins. If you're not getting this from your pastor, spend some time on Pirate Christian Radio. I'm telling you, this is great, great stuff, and you need to hear it. So I I present this empowered by the Spirit to tell others about Christ as the counterpoint to the Christianity under attack piece that we read earlier in the program. Who cares? We've always been under, under attack, under the gun, under pressure, maligned made fun of. And so what if it we're on the decline? If we're on the decline, folks, the solution to that is proclaiming Christ and Him crucified for our sins. To let people know of their sinfulness and to know, let people know not just that. That's just the beginning to let them know of the great God and Savior that we have in Jesus Christ and how it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should repent and come to a knowledge of the truth. Our God is ridiculously gracious and merciful. It's offensive to other people just how ridiculously merciful he is. He's so merciful he can even save somebody as wicked as you and as me. This is the good news. Folks, if you would like to continue to hear Fighting for the Faith, partner with us. We need your help to continue to bring this ministry, this outreach to you that proclaims and defends Jesus Christ, the Christian faith, sound doctrine, and biblical discernment. You can partner with us by sending in your gift to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038 or you can log on to fightingforthefaith.com and click on the donate button. Now tomorrow I am going to be out. So tomorrow uh, the Wednesday edition of Fighting for the Faith is a best of program. But we will be back in the saddle on Thursday. On Thursday we've got uh, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Adam Francisco. He's one of the professors at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and one of the editors of *Theologia et Apologia*, which is our uh, which is our Pirate Christian Radio book of the month for the month of March. Great, great book. And Adam Francisco um, has a uh, an essay in there uh, regarding uh, discussing and talking to uh, Muslims. It's a fantastic essay. And uh, looking forward to that interview. So we'll be play- we're going to be recording that earlier on the day on Thursday and playing that for you so that you can get a feel for the great stuff that's available in this book. And also, it, basically, it's uh, Luther's critique and response uh, of uh, to Islam, and it's, it's fantastic, fantastic stuff. So uh, looking forward to Thursday's Fighting for the Faith. Well, with that, we've come to the end of our program. I'd like to thank you for tuning in to Fighting for the Faith. If you would like to email me, you can at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Hey, until Thursday, may God richly bless you and preserve you and keep you in Jesus Christ to the glory of his holy name. Till then, God bless.